I'm going to try to, we started on time, which is important for radio, we'll try to get off on time. Uh, my editor, my boss at NPR, says that if you bring her a piece to edit, you should be through with all the talky stuff 40 seconds into the piece, right? The intro and the first words of the reporter piece, and you really better have a good piece of tape to play uh, right there about 40 seconds in. So here we go. Come the guitars. This is the one on the left. This is the one on the right. That's a, uh, that's a little radio story. It's a mix down of a jingle done in New York. And I've, I've forgotten when it was done and, and uh, who actually recorded it, but I always keep it on my, uh, on my computer. I think you should have, like, photographs in your cubicle. You should have little things that you can play on your computer, just sort of... Um, I play things like this just to sort of wake, me, wake up my hearing. To explain to me the connection between... Um the Allen Amendment, please. Would you move that light over there just a little bit so I can see? Yeah, that's fine. And uh, the secret submarine base that's in Panama. Are no, I, I can't explain can't that. Explain no, that. I, <laughs> Tell me this. Yeah. Is, is uh, the secret submarine base that they're talking about uh, one of the things in the Allen Amendment? You don't know? Are we on the same planet here? You don't know anything is about this? Are you talking about Galeta Island? I don't know. Is there to be a, another closed session in the Senate? Uh, we're not expecting one right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's 40 seconds. Here's one that's seven... That was Robert Siegel, by the way. Here's one seven seconds long. National yes. Public Poverty. Radio. Poverty Radio. Uh, PBS. Right. <laughs> oh, I'll play that again. That's fine. National yes. Public Poverty. Radio. Public radio. Uh, PBS. Right. <laughs> okay, a 2008 classic, incident classic, although I wouldn't tell her this directly. Um, a good friend of mine, Shireen Miraji, did this piece. Shireen was the first director for Day to Day in, in, at, at NPR West. And uh, over the few years of that program, she's done a lot of producing and now she's doing reporting. Actually, she's gone to work for PBS, so we have sort of like trained her up to that level. She's gone to work for PBS, but she'll come back. And the reason I know about this story is because I called Alex Chadwick and I said, what have you heard great this year that I can play for the people uh, in Evanston? And he said, well, we'll go find this piece that Shireen did. It's when the government was giving out 
money that was to be used for, you know, just to kind of spend and boost the economy. And here's Shireen's piece. My stimulus check travel adventure began at a coffee shop in Los Angeles. Checking mic levels between sips of my $4 latte, I noticed two guys looking at me curiously. So I said, I work for NPR and I'm going to Prim to gamble. Have you been there? And one of them replied, Absolutely. Um, some people have teeth and some people don't. We'll leave it at that. That's Jeff Holiday, But he likes to be called... Holiday. I'm a gambler from blood, you know what I mean? Doc Holiday and all that. Holiday shared his gambling tips. I gave him my card and was off to pick up my friend Heather Murphy. Heather works for NPR's online department. The soundtrack for this road trip through the desert? Yeehaw! George Jones. Heather and I got two free tickets to his concert with our $60 room at Whiskey Pete's Hotel and Casino. 230 miles of George Jones's greatest hits, with a stop for gas. Hi, can I get forty dollars on seven, please? Forty on seven? Yeah. And one bathroom break in Barstow, where we met Loretta Dyer. She works at the Welcome Center in the Outlet Mall. Seventy percent of the people that come into our mall are drive-bys, and they're either going from Vegas to LA because we're the center point. So you must meet some amazing people all sitting in this chair. Well. The ones that understand English. Tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why? Two and a half hours later. Oh, yeah, George. We've arrived. Oh, my God, here we are. Here we are. Crossing the Nevada state line. How would I describe Prim? Well, it's like a 99-cent store version of Vegas for some people and a rest stop on the way to Vegas for everyone else. Perfect if you have 300 bucks and a car. And the hotel room wasn't that bad. Entering the billionaire's lounge with a fabulous view of a mound of dirt <laughs> with like a silo on top of it. Yeah, I think it might contain sewage water. <laughs> Maybe that's what that smell was. Okay, so there was a really strong sewer smell on the first floor, but we didn't let that get us down. Off to see a country music legend. A hell of a show. Please welcome the legendary George had a sore throat, but that didn't stop him from advertising spring water and George Jones' country sausage between songs. Needless to say, we snuck out early. And while we were playing $5 blackjack, I heard a familiar voice. Some people have teeth and some people don't. Yes, Holiday and his friend from the coffee shop followed us to Prim. A little weird, I know. But this guy was serious about gambling. He smacked down an entire stimulus check on his first bet, $600. I felt like throwing up, and it wasn't from the $9 buffet. We won $1,200. That was the highlight of his night. Now I'm down 1000 and and he's down 1000 So it's just the way stuff goes sometimes. You gotta roll with the punches. Heather and I still had $200 between us. So we bought Holiday and his friend dinner and decided to go outlet shopping before heading home. Prim, Nevada, stimulating. Shireen Miraji, NPR News. I, I like a couple of things about that piece a whole lot. One is that she totally disses George Jones, one of my heroes, right? She just forgets him. And it's totally, did you notice it's totally transparent? She tells you exactly what she's doing, who she's with. Uh, they're going to spend this money, and they go. And the piece to me has got this momentum 
that's kind of going this way, like it's a classic, classic travel piece. It's a road piece. You're just going to keep leaning to the right. Shireen's in person sounds exactly like that. She's got that much personality, and she's just really vibrant on the radio. And, 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 it's, and it's hard to do. It's, it's hard for all of us to do. But she's, she's bought it. That's exactly the way she sounds directing a program. I want to go back to the, to the Robert Siegel thing. Uh, I, I don't want to give you the impression that was on the air. That was from a Christmas tape that somebody put together of outtakes. And I just thought that it, that might amuse you. Uh, <laughs> Robert wouldn't do anything like that on the air. Um, but that brings up a very important point that I'll tell you about Robert. The reason I like to play it is because Robert's laugh and Susan Stanberg's laugh have just been, to me, sort of like the touch points of all those decades. And uh, anytime Robert gets laughing on the radio, it's just perfectly natural and wonderful. There was a time when, when you're doing live radio, uh, I don't know, Bob Boylan, our director for many years, was here. Were, were you here uh, there when we, we had the zipper, the Bill Clinton zipper? Absolutely. I did the billboard 17 times. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you this. Yeah, we'll take the time to tell a story. Uh, since he was here. Um, we have, for some reason, uh, the hosts for All Things Considered go in to do the billboards, all four of them, at about, what, 12 minutes before the hour. You know, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And uh, it always, Bob knows it always frustrated me. And we go in there, and you just get really one pass at it, at, at a 60-second billboard and a 30 and a 60 and a 30. And over the years, you get to be pretty good at it. Uh, I know it was frustrating for Bob. And there was one particular tease tape where Bill Clinton said, well, let me show you this. And the next sound you heard was motor drives going off on all these cameras at the White House. But it sounded like a zipper. <laughs> it sounded, didn't it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know who picked this thing. And so... <laughs> Did you pick it? I didn't. You did. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. But, but it didn't. When I picked the tape, it didn't sound like a zipper. But when Robert laughed, <laughs> that's all I could hear. That's all you could hear. <laughs> so Robert starts laughing. I start laughing. He's over there, and we're not looking at each other. We take it again. We take it again. We take it again. And then we're past the five-minute mark where they shut down the studio, and they let us have one more to crack at it. And we have to go to another studio. And I'm serious, if we hadn't taped it in the other studio, we would have done it live, and we would have laughed. And that is career-ending moment. I mean, it really is true. I don't know if they would fire you for it, but just think about that. It was so vivid. Bill Clinton said, well, let me show you this. And you hear that zipper sound. <laughs> and and we, we taped it, and we were in separate studios. And we were going like this, and I couldn't look at Robert. And, and it's the only time that, that we've come close to, to, to breaking up like that. But it's just so much great fun to have in the studio. Um, let me tell you just a bit about my background because it, I think it's interesting. John Lennon said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making plans. Uh, I was a construction worker in Kentucky. Yet I had some commercial radio background. And I started volunteering for a public radio station there, playing rock music back in the 70s on a show that we called After Midnight. And um, till 2 o'clock in the morning, and I would get up and go to work, 7 o'clock. And I um, volunteered to do a documentary about an environmental issue there, which had to do with the gorge that the Army Corps of Engineers wanted to build, a dam and a flood. And that documentary was, was, was uh, broadcast around the state. Anyway, um, 
just to tell you that background because people don't wind up doing. John Hockenberry, for example, when he came to public radio, when Mount St. Helens came along, John was a music major uh, in college in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Tom Jelton taught school in a one-room on an island in Maine. Uh, that was going to be his career. So you just don't know what's going to happen to in the future. I promised this morning I would embarrass myself. So this is, a, this is the very first thing I ever did in news and radio. And um, I would take it to workshops around the system. And we would go in and I would say, how many people like your own voice? And nobody would raise their hand. Probably that wouldn't happen here. And they would look around and they'd be amazed. And I would say, well, I don't like my own voice either. And you know, my message is if, the, if you do it and you can work under pressure and they give you a paycheck on Friday and you come back Monday, then you know, pretty much got a job and don't pay any attention to it. But, so, so picture 28 people with their pieces to be played in front of everybody else to be deconstructed. And uh, once they would hear this, they would just sort of relax because it couldn't be, you know, it just could not be as, uh, as bad as this. They're big production music. Sorry. <laughs> In 1968, the National Environmental Policy Act was passed by Congress. Among other things, it provides that the Corps of Engineers prepare and publish a detailed statement which will alert reviewing agencies, the President, Congress, and the public, to all known possible environmental consequences of the proposed action. This statement is to include matters that are brought to the uh, There's an actuality coming up, but it's, it's just about as bad it as that. It also describe the alternate methods of achieving <laughs> this goals. Was, this was an hour-long documentary. I didn't get a job at NPR to be on the air. I got a job as a tape editor and writer, and, uh, and it just wound up being on the air. So I didn't really have any ambition for it. But... Um, you know, it happens. Uh, during this hour that we have, um, I just decided not that we would try to open up the playing field of, of imagination and memory a little bit and go beyond what I consider to be the basic canon of radio intelligence and uh, creativity and dedication. And uh, so we're not going to be playing. We're going to assume that you have access to Peter Leonard Brown, who was here last year in Bells in Europe. Um, all of Susan Stanberg's work. I asked Ellen Weiss, my boss, what should I take of Susan? What do you like? And she said, everything. Just take everything of Susan in like in 35 years. So we're just going to skip over Father Cares. We won't be paying attention to that. Uh, Bells in Europe. Uh, the Kitchen Sisters have their own hour and a half tomorrow. Um, Got a Life 101 has been honored here. This American Life, of course. So we'll assume that you, you have access to those programs and try to find things that are just a bit more esoteric and uh, go a little bit deeper. Here's a um, local voice. This is Ken Nordine. I don't know if you know. Anybody know who Ken Nordine is? Oh, good, good. Are you ready? This is a Levi's test. A warp and woof test. If you That's listen. a Levi's spot from about 20 years ago. Ken was the first commercial freelance announcer in the country. And he started in 1947, and he is still working. And his voice sounds pretty much like that. I mean, he's really great. And um, I had a chance to go talk to him. He, when, when a tape leaves his studio, 
and uh, anybody know where the studio is, north of Chicago? Some, it's someplace here. When a tape leaves the studio, he's got a sticker on it that says, do not roll off low end, meaning it's, you know, it's going to work for your system. Don't have to take off, to take off any of that voice. Um, and I, I had a chance to go visit him, and he talked to me about, he used to do a lot of stuff for public radio, about what he discovered in 1947 that made his work different. Now he's able to have pretty much of a fantastic career. And you hear, here is the new news, and now we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Now there is the sale, and they get this kind of a talk that they, that's the way, and then you say, uh, uh, how come you talk that way? And the fellow said, well, that's the way you're supposed to talk. Mm -hmm. The CBC called me and they said, we want to do something. And the other fellow in the end said, talking to me normally, just the way you are. He says, uh, hold it just a minute, I, I have to announce you. Ladies and gentlemen, here is, and, 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 and hello, <laughs> Ken Nordine. And I said, uh, I was going to say, hello, how are you? It is a pleasure being here. But, but you see, that's, that's because he has a mental fix on what being an announcer is. It's not that, it's just being a person. Right when he said that, just being a person, it always sounds to me like Robert Krulwich. They had that same sort, of, same sort of natural style. So that's what he did. He just started talking like a regular person. Um, Ken did, we asked Ken, he was also he was doing word jazz and things like that, a lot of experimental stuff. And we asked him to do a mix for us, and I'm going to play this. It's about two and a half minutes. Uh, I mentioned Bells in Europe, and I listened to it the other night, all the way through in the dark, and I realized that I have stolen a lot of style from Bells in Europe. It, it came out in 73. Dieter Grossman was the sound engineer. Won the pre, I'm sorry, it won the Pre-Italia in 73. Um, and it's about the time that I, I started in public radio. And when I heard the story I'm going to play is about the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania. And when I heard it, I realized it's just a pale imitation of what Peter Leonhard Brown did with Bells in Europe and that kind of thing, although it was separated by many years, about 10 years, and I hadn't realized what I had done. Uh, and we had asked Ken Nordine to do, in David McCullough's great book about the Johnstown flood, they have a lot of eyewitness accounts about the sound elements in the flood. Flood comes down the valley from 1,000 feet higher into Johnstown. Uh, it takes an hour to get there, and it picks up things along the way. It picks up chickens and people, and, and there's a railroad train uh, engine rushing down the valley to warn people, and everything. There's a great paragraph, a page about the sound, and we sent that to Ken Nordine, and we said, would you just do this for us? You know, we don't have the facilities to do it. And he did a sound design, and we mentioned earlier in the piece about you're going to get to hear the sound of the Johnstown flood. So I'll play a little bit of that. Think of Johnstown and the water and imagine the late afternoon of May 31st, a century ago. It's gray and oppressive with the rain and cold smoke in the valley and fear. You've come to a new country, to Pennsylvania, with your family to find work and a home. The days in the steel mills, dangerous, exhausting. And then the flood. You don't know that it's not happening all over the world. Some thought it was the visitation of God. At first there was a strong wind whipping past. 
and you could see up the valley a cloud of black smoke and dust. It was talked of afterwards as the death mist. And survivors tried to tell what it sounded like, an avalanche, thunder. They heard whistles blowing, houses being ripped apart, screams, the Johnstown flood. And it goes on like that. It's all from archival stuff, and I'm afraid that we weren't as transparent. I played it for the producer uh, this past week, and I said, did we tell people that what happened, you know? Did we just put this together artificially? It wasn't, no, it wasn't an archival sound of the flood. And um, in, in the top of the piece, we do say, uh, I would do it differently now, but we, we do say uh, we will have a reimagining of the sound of the Johnstown flood. But, you know, if we were doing it today, we would just be straight ahead and open and say, I wonder what it sounded like, you know? We asked Ken Nordine to go into a studio and put some stuff together for us, and here it is. I just thought he did a great job. He's a commercial announcer who just loves sound and still does. Still does. See if you know who this voice is. Oops. Uh, but when I was a fan, my idea of a hot date would be to find a girl who also liked Shepard and lie in bed with her all night listening to Shepard. That's Paul Krasner of The Realist Magazine, and he's talking about Gene Shepard. I'm going to play Gene Shepard's voice in just a bit here. And here is another cut of Paul Krasner. He loved Gene Shepard. One time he had a milling. He just invited listeners to come to this empty parking lot and, uh, at a certain time and, and just mill around. I went there and there were a bunch of people just milling around. The cops came and nobody would tell them what they were there for. Just a bunch of people milling around in an uh, empty parking lot. It looked very suspicious. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, the cops found out and they saw people walking along the street and they would say to him, are, are you waiting for Shepard? It was the uh, poor person's version of waiting for Godot. One of the things that Shepard did was he would hurl epithets he would have people turn the volume on their radio down all the way and put the radio on. Like at apartment courtyards, he would just have everybody open their window and turn the radio on WOR. I, I, uh, I heard years of Shepard. I listened to him when he was on WLW in Cincinnati late at night uh, after midnight. It was very uh, important for me. I just thought it was the greatest thing. And here's what he sounded like. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be fascinating if we had preserved, actually preserved, really preserved, just, just the way he was, you see, with his armor on and everything, a Roman gladiator, 
if somehow he was preserved in ice or something. We had him now. Wouldn't he be a great attraction? Well, let me tell you this, that you will be just as great an attraction 2,000 years from now. If we could preserve you, any one of you, even the, even the nothingest of us, me, any of us, you know, we'd be fascinating to a guy who thought, here's a real 20th century man, just the way he was, sitting there with that funny look on his face. He was on for hours. He would just do this, you know, for four or five hours every night. He was, and he was legendary. And now, you know, it's pretty much forgotten. Um, that's a shame. But anyway, you can hear all these influences here. That was, this is from a KCRW documentary that was done by Harry Shearer. Harry Shearer loved him. Still does. NPR's first program. Excuse me, Jeff came in National Public Radio. Is that a technique where the men actually try to drive the bikes into the demonstrators? No, it's no technique. We're trying to go down the road and the people get in front. What are you going to do? You don't stop on a dime. What happened, officer? That count. Bricks. That don't count. Somebody threw a brick at you, officer? Yes, sir. Right here? As you were driving through? This is uh, May 3rd, 1971, the first broadcast of All Things Considered. Happened to coincide with uh, demonstrations in D.C. And we've always been very proud of that, of that program and, and the particular piece of tape right there. Adam Burke in the room. Is Adam Burke here? Hey, Adam. I'm going to make you, I'm going to embarrass you. <laughs> Adam did a piece that I heard on ATC and called him up about. And, and uh, I'm going to play it for you. And I'll have to skip a little bit, so I hope you don't mind. I urge you to go online and hear the whole thing because it's just gorgeous and a wonderful piece. It's, uh, it's about the New Orleans Jazz Festival a year afterwards and about a piano player there named Bobby Lounge. I see Bobby's got a new album out. He's coming, coming out. Anyway, here's Adam. Here's, here's Adam. And this is, uh, I don't know if it embarrasses you. It would embarrass me to have my piece played, but, but it's a great piece. You see Bobby Lounge play, you have that we're not in Kansas anymore feeling right from the get-go. A nurse in blue hospital scrubs wheels the artist on stage in a silver box with just his head protruding from the top. He calls this contraption his iron lung. Ladies and gentlemen, as some of you know, I'm confined to an iron lung most of the time. Not so much by medical necessity, but personal choice. <laughs> Once Lounge starts pounding the piano, a la Jerry Lee Lewis, it's clear that the nurse and the silver box are part of an act. When Bobby Lounge played at last year's Jazz Fest, it was his first live performance in over 15 years due to a long struggle with chronic fatigue syndrome. And before that, he'd only performed publicly a handful of times. But his energetic piano style and colorfully weird songs had grown a cult following through cassette recordings made at a few rare performances back in the 1980s. We were passing around these bootlegs of him and we thought he was the biggest secret in the world. Or maybe at that time he was. Pianist and songwriter David Egan from Lafayette, Louisiana, says Bobby Lounge tapes became pieces of insider currency for a small but obsessed group of fans who couldn't get enough of Lounge's odd stories. Well, Pancho had his baby and they named him Alfresco. Six months over, you come out dancing for Minko. They strapped some little tap shoes on his tiny little feet. He loved to tap and guacamole to a rumba beat. But they lost him one evening in some refried beef. But Egan says the recordings also revealed a gifted piano player. Now, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead to something else. Church lady. 
received nods from Rolling Stone and the New York Times, and according to Cynthia Joyce, had that coveted. Because what I want you to listen for is the transition from came out of there were what's going on now who had to, it, to be who like, in the oh, world did you catch is Bobby Lounge. No, you oh, you and you'll see what oh, Adam did with man. it. Too bad. <laughs> Even with all that attention, no one knew exactly who Bobby Lounge was or how to get in touch with him. His bio was short on clues. He wouldn't do interviews. And his manager, John Preble, says there are severe limits on Lounge's availability. He only part. plays on a real piano. No electronic thing at all. He'll only play on Saturdays, and he only plays in the key of C. <laughs> but last summer, a local newspaper revealed that Bobby Lounge is a 56-year-old community college art teacher by the name of Dub Brock, who happily lives a quiet, small-town life in Macomb, Mississippi. Brock guarded his privacy because he worried what family and friends might say about his raunchy alter ego. People in Macomb know him as a mild-mannered painter and folk art enthusiast who, among other things, likes to drive around town looking at stuff. Big car junkyard over here. At the helm of his minivan, Brock navigates the back roads outside of town. Well, what I wanted to show you there was that transition, uh, how effortless, transparent it was. First of all, he credited, he didn't say the newspaper, but he said, I saw this in the newspaper, right? You know, I found out this guy is not really Bobby Lounge, and he's actually an industrial arts teacher over in Macomb, Mississippi. And all of a sudden, you're in Bobby Lounge's uh, minivan. Now, I would have taken like 40 seconds to do that, you know. So I rented a car and I got some ice and put it in a cooler and I got some water and I, you know, got a map and I went to Macomb and I asked around and I couldn't find him. But Adam just did that and that's why I wanted to play that piece for you. Plus I love it. Actually, I tried. That's great. I tried to listen to one of his albums. If everything's in the key of C, you ain't got nothing. You can't get through it. <laughs> you, just, you just can't do it. But uh, I just think that's great. Let me play something uh, just a bit more serious, uh, a few more serious things here for you. Melissa Block, as you know, um, with her colleagues at NPR, were in such one province. When the earthquake happened back in May, uh, perfectly situated because of a lot of planning. They didn't know there was gonna be an earthquake, but, but they were there. And she just did some incredible stuff, and a lot of it will be played here, and that work is being honored. It was really wonderful. I just thought it was the culmination of of, of a lot of hard work by NPR News over the years, the Foreign Desk and all the tech people, and it was just great. Uh, I take a, a little bit, uh, well, a great deal of pride in Melissa Block because uh, I hired her uh, a long time ago, back in the 80s, to be my editorial assistant. And then she became my producer, and then she became my boss, and now she's on All Things Considered. And uh, she's just great. The, I'll play a story that she did when she left NPR to become a reporter, and she did, this is back in the Balkans War, and you'll, you'll hear the intensity of it. Song about, it's, a, it's a piece about uh, rape as a weapon in Kosovo. This is a crime that does not leave skeletons waiting to be discovered in shallow graves. It's not a form of torture marked by visible scars. Instead, it is a crime measured in silence and in the tears of a beautiful 18-year-old ethnic Albanian girl who trembles as she haltingly begins to tell her story. We've agreed not to use her name or even to name her hillside village in central Kosovo, so profound is the level of shame that rape brings to its victims in this traditional Muslim society. We'll call her Dafina, 
When Serb forces took over her village, they separated the women from the men, a pattern seen throughout Kosovo. In Dafina's case, women from several towns were herded together into one large group. Serb soldiers walked among the women and girls, separating out those whom they found especially attractive. Dafina was among them. She has luminous skin, bright green eyes, and a shy smile. Late in March, she was taken along with about 45 other young girls to several homes in Stara Chikatova, where many Serb soldiers were living. The girls were ordered to make coffee and clean house. Later that night, Dafina was taken into a room by one of the soldiers. She was forced to undress, and then she was raped. The soldier left her with this chilling message. We won't leave uh, any woman for Kelly. All the women will be ours. Dafina says at least 40 girls were raped that night, some of them as young as 13. The house echoed with screams. I heard some sisters uh, screaming, uh, saying, uh, uh, take us, but don't take this, my young sister, because she's only 14, don't take her. I really like in the beginning they had the uh, Serbo-Croatian that was uninterpreted. Uh, I, pl please raise your hand and ask questions if you have questions. I tend to talk fast because I've, I've got 53 cuts of tape here I'm trying to get through. But I would love to stop and take your questions. And yes? Um, I, I'm interested in how decisions are made about um, interpreting or translating over tape. Um, in this particular piece, I, I haven't heard anything like that recently. but leaving that much of language really just changes the effect that has on you. And I, I'm wondering if, if, you know, what the policies were with it here now or how, how you personally feel about that. Right. I should have asked Melissa about, about that, uh, or why well, she wasn't working with a producer, maybe an editor. Uh, personally, I love to hear languages. And I think they can always be put in context. Sometimes they do not need interpretation. And I don't think that one does because she starts crying. And so, uh, other show producers have had have had different thresh thresholds, and it is really frustrating to listen to a three and a half minute piece, you know, where where the uh, somebody in Sichuan province comes on and they start talking, and all of a sudden you got the English on top of that, and it's just really. And, and, but I'm kind of with you, sort of viscerally about that. You know, I I think people should we should be able to hear languages if not understand them. You know, we should have a chance for that. Uh, Sarajevo. Many of you know that, I, that I'm married to, to Nina Ellis, who is an independent producer, worked at NPR. We worked together. And uh, she's from radio family way back. She went to Sarajevo at a time when I wouldn't go because I was afraid. Uh, the city was under siege. Tom Jelton of NPR was there uh, at that same time. Nina went for sound print. PRI and did a story about Sarajevo, and this is just a little bit of the uh, of the connecting uh, tracks that she did in the streets of Sarajevo. Uh, she still claims that she wasn't scared doing these, but um, see what you think for yourself. It's uh, about 12:30 in the afternoon in downtown Sarajevo. I'm walking along a little side street next to the presidency, coming up to the, one of the main boulevards. It's been kind of a lot of shelling going on here in the eastern part of town today, but it's up in the mountains, really. Nothing, as far as I know, 
that's been coming right into the city. People are walking along the street here, carrying things over their shoulders, riding bicycles, carrying water. But most people just go along. I'm gonna get across here quickly. just going a short way down the street here to have lunch with a young woman that I met. She lives in Sniper Alley. Loud explosions, but they're actually up in the mountains. Now I'm a little safer place behind a building. This street that I'm walking up is sort of protected by buildings. It's not open to the view of the Serb positions. I'm coming up to an open space up here, meaning it's not protected, but by buildings. Well, she got through it. And uh, later, the, the thing that scared me the most about what she told me was that she could actually hear the sniper bullets overhead, and she thought they were birds twittering. And that's not on the tape. I think way down deep you could probably hear the couple levels and some other tape that she has that scared me, you know, like in retrospect. Uh, the woman she went to meet her, became her interpreter and uh, Tom Jelton and, and uh, Nina and myself helped her come to the U.S. Uh, on a U.N. plane and she graduated from American University, broadcast journalism degree and now works for Fox and uh, she's, doing a, she's doing a great job, Shayla Bezdrub is her name. Tom. Uh, did great work from Sarajevo, and this is just 57 seconds from Gordona and Ivan Knesevich. Uh, Gordona was a reporter, and Ivan was a professor, and they were with their teenage son, just hemmed into an apartment building. And I still remember the chill of, of hearing this. It was in the wintertime. I remember hearing this on the radio. I think that the worst part of it that we lost any sense of time. And every day, it, I'm asking 10 times a day, which day is it today? And I can't remember which day in the week it is and which date in the month it is. And I can't even remember which month it is. And if you want me to be very honest, I almost forgot which year is this. We lost any sense of seasons in the year, and we lost any sense of the future. I mean, there is no, I don't know when the spring was finished, and I don't know when the summer started. And there are only two seasons now. There is a war season, and somewhere in the world there is a peace season. <laughs> Not for us here. No, Well, it's just poetry the way she... I, I can remember most of those lines, you know, from the time that, that I heard it on the radio. It's just poetry that was Gordon uh, M. Another one that stays with me, and um, I'll play it for you. This is from... A lot of people got to go do some really good work in the time that the revolutions were happening in, in Europe. And Alex Chadwick, um, who just can get off the plane or the train and go find wonderful stories any place in the world. Here's the way he starts one in Prague. I just found her. 
in the entryway to the School of Philosophy and Languages at Charles University. The first person there who spoke English had said she could work right away. It was already dark, but we walked toward a taxi stand to get a cab to take us into the... Well, there's Alex. You know, I don't want to say people are lucky, but he, he's late to the story. He'll tell you this. He's late to the story. He's the first person he sees happens to speak great English, and she happens to be one of the student leaders of the revolution in Czechoslovakia. So there you are. I kid him about that all the time. Usually, your interpreter, your taxi driver, is the last person you interview. That's the last piece you do when you're leaving the town. But here's the end of the story that he did about Natasha Dudinska and the student revolution and about the fatigue of the young people there. I saw the most beautiful moment of this revolution, or burst, or whatever it is, ten days ago in the big hall in the philosophy building where the huge group meetings took place. They were going to vote again on whether to continue the strike. It was late in the afternoon. The light was already shrinking from the big windows and the patterned glass in the ceiling. A violinist and a pianist from the National Philharmonic had come to play. We will do Dvorak, they said, his 100th sonata which he wrote for his children. There were several hundred students there. They filled the long stepped rows of bench seats and writing places, and they stood in the aisles where there was room and crowded the balcony and back, and they looked down to where the musicians stood near the low platform and the lectern at the front. Each face grew still. Natasha Dudinska was at one end of a long desk where the strike committee sat on the platform. She was wearing the same thick-knit red cotton sweater and green flannel shirt and black pants that she'd had on for three days. Her dark, tangled hair was tied back with a piece of black lace she'd gotten somewhere. She looked pale and colorless, except for a yellowing bruise the size of a dime on her forehead. At last, she folded her arms on the desktop and lowered her head. Her eyes closed for a moment and then struggled back open and closed again. For the only time in the 10 days I saw her, she looked at peace. I thought she might actually be sleeping, but then her small head began to move with the rhythms of Dvorak. a uh, recording that Skip Peasy, one of my tech heroes, did at Gethsemane in Kentucky. We were doing a story about Thomas Merton. And Deb Ramos was the producer. We got off the plane in Louisville. We drove to the monastery, the Trappist Monastery there. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to rec record anything in the monastery because we were afraid to ask the question. The Trappists, as you know, have taken vows of silence. And we weren't sure we'd be able to record. And we didn't want to ask because they would maybe say no. 
So we got out of the car, ran up the bell tower, skipped through up a pair of stereo, threw up stereo rig, and recorded this. And, uh, organ and, and about 20 men singing. And I just don't see how it can get to be any better. This is a uh, submix from the piece, the longer piece that we did about Merton. And what you're going to hear, I'll just tell you to save time, is we hired a musician to listen to this particular organ and to write something for the flute, and then to be ready, as he's hearing it in his headphones, to match the note of the flute, okay, and then to come with the same melody, and we would fade it up out of reverb into dead sounds, uh, dry sound. But you'll hear the flute. You listen very carefully. And then he just starts, the musician's name is Tim Ironman, then he just starts to improvise and he's, you can put narration over this part without having a lot of reverb there. And when we did this, I thought, well, that's so great. We're going to do this for the rest of our careers here at NPR. And I, I can't recall ever having done it since. You could do it the other way. You could have Tim start to play something that would match what you're going into so you could enter the scene that way. We're going to play a little more music here you'll recognize this. It's Alan Toussaint and uh, it's this uh, American Roots theme song. I wish I knew who recorded it. Just, I should have asked him who recorded it. After Katrina, Nick, and his family and some of his crew went to Lafayette, Louisiana, and did their show from there. And I'm listening to it the first week, and here's what I hear. It's Tipitina again, Alan Toussaint again, but they have done something different with it.
So here, this is what John Bewin said this morning about the, the, the power of the minor key. So he just goes to a minor key with that. It's a very subtle thing, and week to week you probably wouldn't notice it, but then I got to thinking about it. That's just great. Uh, I think Nick does a great job, and I, I, I love to hear him do stories. Here's what he did from the Super, Superdome. We've been planning this since we saw the roof blew off on CNN. These jobs come along once in a lifetime. I've been driving by here since I was 18 wanting to play on this roof. That's the guy who's leading the, the, uh, the repair of the Superdome roof. It's ripped off there. It's like 13 acres of metal. And Nick is out here trying. This is like a reporter's dream. You, you're, you're trying to get, you, you know there's no way they're going to let you up there with the guy's crew. So Nick asked this sort of, you know, like perfect, perfect uh, news story situation question. We've been planning this since we saw the roof blew Sorry. off on CNN. Is it possible for us to get out there? Uh, not really. There's yeah. all kinds of insurance stipulations, insurance, yeah. and we well, really haven't well, let anyone go up on the roof. Well, not just anyone. You know. He's going to make go it up, up to a certain point room. with you, or is what's your how how would it yeah, go? Yeah, I can take you guys up there a little far, bit yeah. as long as we make it quick and come back down. Oh, quick is what we like. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Sure so anyway, Nick's really working it, and they get all the way up there. I know, but I'm looking down, man. You're you're walking along telling jokes. That was fun. That was fun to hear. A couple other sound moments. Here's one recorded by Flan Williams in Ecuador. some sort of bird. Um, all these sounds recorded for radio expeditions over the years have been ar are being archived at Cornell, at the ornithological lab up there. And one of the recorders there was one, uh, Bill, Depp, um, Bill McQuay, is cataloging all that. So all that great sound that you, that you work so hard and travel for, so long for and spend so much money for, uh, is, is going to be in good hands at Cornell, and I'm happy about that. Flan did, from that trip, a um, web piece, and here it is. He gets to explain what he does. Only a smattering of dewdrops can be heard when I rise at about 4 a.m. By 4.30, I'm treading softly into the dark forest, navigating by headlamp and handheld flashlight, carrying a lightweight MS stereo recording rig and a tripod. For quiet situations that need lots of amplification, being able to support the mics on a tripod and move several feet away results in far fewer bumps and breaths on the recording. At my first stop along the trail, I hear some interesting night birds, crickets, and cicadas, but there is also a recurring low-pitched sound, patterned like a bird call, but in a low register. It's more melodic than a snore, but it sounds like something that could be sleeping. I move closer to the mysterious sound and record for a while. That sound is mesmerizing, but I fear I may already be late for my date with the Howlers, 
so I head farther into the forest. I arrive at the 660-meter marker along the trail. That's my landmark from a few mornings ago. I set up the gear and start recording at 5.33 a.m. And less than two minutes later, my quarry, the dominant male howler monkey, starts into howling. He and his group are less than 100 meters away from me and 100 feet up a tree. I reposition to get somewhat closer and re-aim the mic in his direction. This time, instead of eight seconds, I get nearly eight minutes without the sound of me clattering in the undergrowth. I guess in a way, I always known that I was bisexual. Just like when I was in the first grade and I used to live like in my old house down on my grandmother's block now, all the kids used to be friends and we always used to go into um, the backyards and like play these little games. And I remember one day we were playing um, a game. It was kind of like Sleeping Beauty where like the prettiest girl on the block fell asleep on her picnic bench. And uh, you know, somebody had to go and like wake her up to like kiss her and revive her. And it would always be, you know, one of the boys. And I always felt like, like I, I wanted to go and revive her. Rotary phone. <laughs> Dawn, what you doing? Been going out with Dawn for two years and five months now. We've known each other for practically three years. And I am totally, madly, head over heels in love with her. I'll probably come and get you after I'm done, okay? All right, bye-bye. And I go see my little baby, my girlfriend. Girlfriend, I love it. <laughs> Dawn, what you doing? I, I just think of these things as pieces of music, you know, you just play them because they're in your mind. And, uh, and th here's some more voices. You can't go wrong with voices. Elise Spiegel did a great story in Trailer Park and Katrina Aftermath in Hancock County. Hancock County, I spent a lot of time there, and uh, I didn't get close to a story this way. They kept throwing me out of the trailer parks. Where's your steel-toed boots? You know, I had everything else on. No, I haven't got those. And, uh, but Elise has that ability to get there and talk to people, and people talk to her. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but what I want to make it sound like is that I don't understand how she does it. And I don't think she understands how she does it either. But she's fantastic. And this is a couple of minutes from um, a story that she did about the suicide rate. I can't sleep. I have to listen if anybody comes close to the trailer or to the truck. Somebody might break in or hurt the dog in there. What do you mean hurt the dog? They got somebody feeding antifreeze to pets around here. They've been feeding antifreeze to the pets? Yeah. Some crazy people around here. They go on after animals. I actually heard this charge from a number of people. Somebody was cruel enough to murder my dog. This is Cynthia Bobinger, a small woman with a wandering eye, who, after introducing herself, 
calmly explained that the family dog had been killed three days before. They gave a man a freeze and killed him. I buried him in my yard up there. I got him buried up there with the blue cross. Another resident complained that her cat had come home maimed, a razor cut across his leg. And then there was their neighbor, Mr. Smith. My dog got slashed with a knife or something. People back there killing people's dogs for no reason. No one seemed to have a theory about who was responsible, why. That was just the way things went at the camp nowadays. People were angry and frustrated, and so they acted out on the animals, on each other, on themselves. Shortly after talking to the Snows, I met a man named Tim Sepek walking the road between some trailers. He was tall, capable looking. I asked if we could talk, and he agreed. So I started with what I thought was a casual question. What is it like to live around here? Honestly, um, in a day go by, I don't think about, like, offing myself because uh, it ain't worth living out here. For real? For real. It, it sucks out here. Before Katrina, Peck built forklifts. But after FEMA moved him out to scenic trails, his car broke down and left him without transportation. This meant he had nothing to do all day but sit in his trailer, visit the mailroom, and think about killing himself. Had you ever thought about that before? No. And when you think about that, what do you think about? Ways to do it. I know plenty of ways. It's just the least painful one, probably. Do you have a family? Yeah. I have a child. A couple seconds later, CPEC walked away, and I wandered down the lane, past a group of children playing, to another trailer, where a woman named Stephanie Sigger sat at a picnic table with her daughter on her lap. I introduced myself, sat down, and roughly three minutes later, found myself in the exact same conversation. If it wasn't a sin, I would have done committed suicide a long time ago. I know it's a bad thing to say because I'm a parent, but I, I can't live like this no more. Let me ask you about images that many Americans are seeing today and hearing about. Uh, they are from the convention center in New Orleans. A CNN reporter has described thousands of people, he says, many of them, see them in the pictures, mothers with babies in the streets, no food, corpses and human waste. Our reporter, John Burnett, has seen the same things. How many days before your operation finds these people, brings them at least food, water, medical supplies, if not gets them out of there? Well, first let me tell you, there have been deliveries of food, water, medical supplies to the Superdome, and that's happened uh, almost from the very beginning. But this is the convention center. These are people who are not allowed inside the Superdome. Well, but people, but, you know, there have been, we have brought this to the, to the Superdome. There are stations uh, in which we have put water and food and medical supplies. The limiting factor here has not been that we don't have enough supplies. The factor is that we really got, had a double catastrophe. We not only had a hurricane, we had a second catastrophe, which was a flood. That flood made parts of the city very difficult mm -hmm. to Michael Chertoff, I, I could hear this as a piece of music, too, this, this particular interview. You can go through a career as a host of All Things Considered and not have this happen to be in a, in a situation where you're talking to the, to the government official involved about what's happening uh, and nobody's told them what's going on in the Superdome. This was a taped interview. Robert, I, I haven't talked to Robert about it, but I, I assume that Robert thought that Chertoff knew what was happening in the convention center as opposed to the Superdome. Um, Robert's had a couple of moments like this. I mean, he's just great. One of them I know that I couldn't have done. He had to interview, uh, got to interview Bill Clinton right when the Lewinsky scandal was coming up real big. 
And they kept putting it off. I was traveling that day. I was listening. You know, they kept putting it off through the day. And it was going to be a live interview or nothing. And so it had to be live at 6 o'clock. And I would have just been so nervous. I couldn't have done it. I know I couldn't have done it. Uh, but, you know, there he was. And you had to ask the question, Mr. President, what about this? And that's when he said, I did not have sex with that woman. And they asked a couple of more follow-ups. And uh, so anyway, here's Robert. The, the next part of this interview, Robert just can't believe that Chertoff, the Homeland Security Secretary, doesn't have any idea what's going on uh, pretty close to him there in New Orleans. And actually, it's been on television, and Burnett's been inside, and everybody knew about it except Michael Chertoff. We're here, we are hearing from, from our reporter, and he's on another line right now, thousands of people at the convention center in New Orleans with no food. Well, Zero. You know, as I say, I'm telling you that we are getting food and water to areas where people are staging. And, um, you know, it's, the one thing about an episode like this is if you, if you talk to someone and you get a rumor or you get someone's anecdotal version of something, I think it's dangerous to extrapolate it or, uh, uh, all over the place. Um, the, the limitation here on getting food and water to people is the condition on the ground. And as, as soon as we can physically move through the ground um, with these assets, we're going to do that. So, but but it, second, Mr. Second, when you say that there, we, don't, we shouldn't listen to rumors, these are things coming from reporters who have not only covered many, many other hurricanes, they've covered wars and refugee camps. Well, I mean, I, these aren't rumors. I, They're I, seeing thousands I, I, of people but, but, there. But, well, I, I, I would be, I, say, I, I have not heard a report of thousands of people in the convention center who don't have food and water. It's uh, about 11.15 on Friday night. We've... Uh, Built a fire in the firebox about an hour ago. At this time, we've got good heat on our on the pits that we're going to put our brisket on. Get them on and get all the lids closed and leave them alone for a couple hours. A bandy-legged former rodeo clown and prison guard named Carrie Bexley is the owner of Snow's Barbecue. It's in the little town of Lexington, an hour's drive northeast of Austin. It only opens Saturday mornings. He and three employees arrived by 10 p.m. Friday to light the oak logs. I want to keep my heat about 250, 275 on them briskets. If I ain't got that, I ain't doing no good. Barbecue requires heat, smoke, salt and pepper, and time. The alchemist of these ingredients is known as the pit master. Tootsie Tominets has been cooking barbecue in Central Texas for 42 of her 73 years. She shows up at 2 a.m. like a Texas tornado. And y'all just now putting them on fat side down? I don't want them fat side down. Okay, well, you want to leave them, flip them back? Flip them back, I want fat side okay. up all okay. times. Miss Tootsie, as she's respectfully called, tends the massive iron pits and hissing fireboxes like an admiral minding her fleet. Her gray hair is cut sensibly short. A blue apron is fastened around her waist. During the week, she works as a school custodian. On Saturday mornings, her strong arms turn short ribs and chicken halves, briskets and pork steaks with a practiced flip of the fork. Standing before the pits all night, she's enveloped in smoke. But like a beekeeper resistant to stings, it doesn't seem to bother her. She's all business. It's 3.30, and we're thinking about getting ready to wrap them in foil. They've got a golden brown. 
time was when Miss Tootsie cooked mainly for locals. This uh, it's John Burnett, of course, and uh, he's doing uh, a barbecue piece. This is the number one barbecue place in all of Texas. It's only open on Saturday morning, and he's in there overnight with them. And you know, you just can't go wrong. Now that brings up. I have on my list here, right above that, Mad Cal, and I'm going to play a little bit of this interview because I did, on All Things Considered, um, just a scary number of interviews. And when I said before, there could be career, ch there can be career changing moments for an ATC host, I mean that. Uh, this is an interview in which I ask a question in such a way as to offend a lot of people. Uh, and I'll tell you the story. I'll, we'll get to the question and you'll hear it. And then we, this is, has to do with the mad cow disease outbreak in Britain. Um, and it's a dairy farmer in Wales that we've talked to. We just called, it's a normal procedure. We just called her up and um, booked a telephone interview and here it is. Joe Jones runs Ditches Farm with her husband, Winston. Their farm is in the town of Church Stoke in Montgomery in Wales. Half of the cows on Ditch's farm were diagnosed with foot and mouth disease this past weekend. The next day, the entire herd had to be shot and then burned. Mrs. Jones spoke with us today about how they learned the cows were sick. We diagnosed them on the Saturday. The ministry vet came and confirmed the case, but we didn't need a vet to tell us. What did you see? Um, the first case... A cow had lost her milk, or dropped her milk. She'd lost half of that. Um, drooling heavily, and then we looked in her mouth and all the skin fell off her tongue. The skin fell off her tongue? Yeah, and then the skin fell off her udder as well. Uh, that, that seems to have come on rather quickly. It spreads so voraciously. Um, by Sunday morning, there was probably another six cases, and by the afternoon before we shot them all, half the herd had got the clinical symptoms and were very sick. Now tell us please about, about, these, uh, about your dairy herd. Uh, what type are they and how long have you had them? They were pedigree, Holsteins, every one of them we knew by name. Um, and they've been in my husband's farm for three generations. This particular strain had been there? Yes, yes. And you had 228 yeah. dairy cows? Well, milking cows and the, their, obviously their followers, their daughters who would come into the herd. And was there any doubt that they would all need to be slaughtered? It appears not. I mean, ultimately, just to have seen how fast it was going through the cows, one assumes it would have taken them all in the end. Now, to be clear, these are, are dairy cattle and would not have been slaughtered. They, what, what, would, what would have happened to them in their old age? In their old age, some of them would have been pensioned off and kept here till they died. Yes, and others sold for meat. No, because with the BSE that we have here as well, um, none of them would have ever gone into food chain now. The mad cow disease? Yeah. And... How did you arrange for the person to come to, to shoot the cows? Oh, by that time, it was all out of our control. It was all being arranged by the, the Ministry of Agriculture. There was, there was dozens of people in white suits here. They arranged all that. Thankfully, we didn't have to arrange that. Did you watch? 
Oh, my God, no. Oh, no, I heard it. That was enough. I heard it. Watch. No, no. I say goodbye to them all. But they just shot them where they stood. Oh, no. Watch. No way. I watched them burn afterwards because I needed to be there for them. I'd have watched that. And now I'm living with the horror of it all. I think it's the most harrowing experience I could ever, ever, ever imagine going through. I say, my 10-year-old daughter knew every one of those cows by name. She didn't have to, to look at their numbers. She knew they were by their faces. I could have gone in blindfold and touched everybody's udder, and I could have told you exactly which cow it was. Yes. We had one outstanding cow, and you just called her name. She was called Darling. That was her pedigree name, Darling. <clears throat> Actually, it goes on for about two more minutes, and there's kind of very nice discussion at the end, and... and um, and she's fine. Now, of course, you notice the question one was when I said, did you watch? Um, I, that's a question I'd like to have back. <laughs> you, you can't take them back. It's like a pitcher throwing a, throwing a, you know, a pitch. But, um, yeah. Oh, why? Because people thought it was crass. They thought it was... And it, when you listen to it a little bit, it's a, just a little off. It's like singing, you know. You really got to be right there with it. And I was a little bit, I don't know, I was tired or whatever. But my idea of interviews is to be in the mood the person is. So you notice that I'm, I'm neither, I'm not as sad as she is, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, not falsely sad. I'm not funereal. Uh, I'm just trying to stay right there with her. Yes. I mean, it was a risk to you, but you got such a tremendous reaction from her by asking that. Sure. Yes. Another question? Well, just, I mean, what followed her, like, immediate astonishment to your question was this incredible story about yes. her relationship with these animals. I mean, which was, yeah, I mean, all that we just heard was the most right. part, really. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, people, yes, way in the back. Did you regret it in the moment? I mean, did you feel right away that it no, I didn't regret it in the moment. Uh, I kind of knew it, but you know, again, I liked I liked the response that it got. It provoked a response. Why did you decide to keep it in in the, in the final edit? It didn't seem to be a problem. Um, it wasn't. A, it was not a live interview. It was a long interview. It wasn't live. Got lots of people complaining. And the, the best one I got was an email from a judge, trial judge. He said. He said, I heard that, and I heard that question. I knew you'd get lots of nasty mail about it, and I didn't like it myself. But I have to tell you, from my professional experience many years, Mr. Adams, that everyone who was horrified by the question stayed to hear the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually had a bigger failure than that. I intervie interviewed a, a, a neo-Nazi guy um, some years ago, and did an interview that was too subtle, and uh, treated him like a regular person, and I shouldn't have, and and uh, that's the one I really want back. This one is just kind of you know interesting, academic, um, Mrs. Pitches, uh, you know, really with uh, I want to get the, I want to get that interview situation back with that guy, and I want to say to him, you know, sounds like we're having an ordinary civilized kind of talk here, but if I were having this talk in a bar, 
I'd be getting out of here and putting as much distance between me and you as possible. You know, I would, that's the time when you can say something like that. Yeah. Why would you have wanted to say that? I just, it was just too much. It was over the top. He, it was, he was full of hatred. Uh, he was inciting uh, violence against blacks. It was just too much. But if, but if you're talking to him as an ordinary reporter, in some ways the contrast makes that clearer to your listener. Well, than, if you, than if you enter into it emotionally, no? That's what I was. I, that's what I was thinking. But, it, you know, listening back to it and listening casually to it and listening out of context and not being aware of the previous day's stories was far too subtle and, it too, and too inflammatory. The situation was too dangerous for that sort of, you know. I asked him why he didn't like black people. That tended to be, I mean, I wanted that to be a very sarcastic question, but it, it read as literal, you know, like, you know. I guess I feel that way too. I don't know what it is about it, but that was a bad mistake. That one, that one was. But uh, you know, you hear about you hear about the. Um, uh, I did an interview with somebody who made a, uh, a kids video about construction equipment uh, years ago. You know the little videos that kids like to watch. And I was talking to this guy. He's up in New Hampshire, and he's all happy because he's going to be on NPR. And I said to him, I said, I just happened to notice that the music. You're using all sounds like softcore pornography music. <laughs> I didn't mean anything by it, and he was so shocked. He got mad at me, and he, what he should have said, "Well, how much softcore porno are you watching these days?" <laughs> but a lot of those questions, and you think of the good questions, you know, when you're when you're on your way home for that night. <laughs> That's when they let's, let's just hear a little bit of Verda Mae Grosvenor, just for some like a musical inter interlude here. What you think? Huh? I know my thing. You know, I got my fork and that pen. You know, y'all go that pen. I got my fork. You see why I got my chicken in law? I'm gonna turn with the record. I got home. That's how I feel. I have. When I get a meet that day, and they was talking about the things about people losing on the car and right them. The them said, "Oh God, no, but not them big old tree." He said, "You know, I probably all there, and I see them little bit of big ones." I said, "You ask them people because they must have come to put." I grew up in the Carolina lowlands, so I understand Bertha Robinson Stafford. She's right. I think it's terrible they stole her turkeys like that. Gullah's <laughs> a patois, a dialect, a way of speaking English with an African rhythm. Sea Island people are warm, witty, generous, loyal, but they're very independent, and it takes a while to get to know them, and a while for them to let you know them. They divide people into two groups, for Binyas and for Cumyas, natives, newcomers. After some years and many visits, I've made some friends on Fusky, like Mr. Johnny Hamilton. He's my friend, but even so, I have to coax a song out of him. You know, sweet by and by, further along. Further along? Further along, sweet by and by. No. Cheer up, my brother, live in the sunshine. That one. We'll understand it, boom, by and by. By and by, by and by, in the sunshine land, we gonna soon be by and over. By and by, by and by, by and by, over sweet home, over sweet home, we got. That's a Vertime Grosvenor story. I guess twenty-five years old from Defusky Island, South Carolina. From the moment I walked through the two metal doors of what was once San Quentin's gymnasium, 
All I can see are two things, men and bunk beds, from the front wall all the way to the back of the room. On a riser somewhere around the free throw line, there's a single officer. Can I come up there and see the whole room? There's not much up here. Officer Michael McLean is sitting on an old metal chair next to an old metal desk under the basketball hoop. He points to the bunks. You have seven rows. The first row was row one, row two, row three, row four, row five, row six, and the last row is considered the... This is uh, Laura Sullivan, our Justice Department reporter, and uh, with, with much jealousy, I tell you that this is her first broadcast, this is her first job in radio. She worked for the Baltimore Sun. And she just got it, you know, she knows. Anybody hear this story of San Quentin? I wish all of you had heard it and I recommend it all of you. I'm going to play the key part for me, the part where I said, boy, this is, this is really it. She's in the gym, and there's Laura, and she's, you know, there's, there's hundreds of guys in there, and they're divided by, they have divided themselves by race. And uh, we're with her just like we're with uh, Clarice Starling in Day of the Lambs. Right there is the reference, you know. We're just there, and we're getting scared for her. And then this happens. Metcalf is about to show me his locker. Uh, down here. Uh, oh, lock. Metcalf and every inmate in the gym drop to their knees. I can see them scanning each other's faces. The noise is deafening. In the entire gym, I am the only person still standing. You gotta get down too. I look over at the officer on the riser and he motions for me to stay up. The alarm means there's a problem somewhere in this prison, but it's not here in the gym. Each officer carries a personal alarm that sounds system-wide. Somewhere, one of them has felt threatened enough to trigger it. The rule is hands and knees on the floor. If your hands and knees aren't on the floor, it's up to the tower guard whether or not to shoot you. 5,000 men across this vast prison wait on the ground. An inmate huddled by his bed makes a motion toward my microphone. Would you want to live here? In two days at San Quentin, this alarm sounded every couple of hours. So what she's, what she's doing there is, of course, describing she got interrupted by that sound. She was rolling on that. I have an editor, Steve Drummond, who says this about sound and taught me, actually taught me. He says, you, you, you got to get the start of a sound or the end of a sound. You can't be fading up on the middle of a sound producing a piece, you know. Got a little airplane trip coming up. You better want to start that prop and get all that stuff going on or get it shut off, you know. And he, he, he just doesn't have any patience with fading up and fading out of sounds. But anyway, she's got the sound. And so she's told us about this strange thing, about this alarm going off in San Quentin. And what that means, and everybody gets down and they can shoot you if you stand up. So we are being educated as to how to listen to what comes next. What comes next, this was a long piece. This piece ran in 12 minutes. There was a cutaway, and then there was eight minutes more. This comes from the second eight minutes. Again, an officer somewhere in San Quentin has triggered the alarm. Inmates all along the tier and as far up the hallway as you can see are on their hands and knees. A supervisor in the command center uses the overhead speaker system to get the officer who triggered the alarm to check in. Nobody can reach him. Still nothing. With every minute that passes, the tension rises. On the ground, there's movement. Ever so slightly, the inmates are grouping shifting toward members of their own race. What's going on? Uh, we have an alarm. 
the status of the alarm is unclear at this moment. Just as Lieutenant Robinson says this, two medical officers rush by with a gurney and the alarm finally ends. Well, what scared me so much as a listener there is that these prisoners on the ground have become organisms. They have become, they're, they're creating an organism. They're crawling around. You want to hear that again? With every minute that passes, the tension rises. On the ground, there's movement. Ever so slightly, the inmates are grouping shifting toward members of their own race. What's going on? So you can just picture that, you know, that's, that's a really cinematic technique, the way she's describing that, and very scary about what's going on. She's doing great work, Laura Sullivan is. Uh, I'm going to play one more piece before we stop. I just have five minutes left. The piece is only about, is about two minutes and a half. So let me, let me take a couple of questions before we have, we have to uh, wrap it up. Yes. Is there stuff that um, maybe 10 years ago or so is really exciting to you about, you know, a sort of storytelling approach that now is really boring to you? That's a good question. I, uh, it, I listened, I, I, I was given about five days off work to put this together and to go back and stuff that I thought was great. Some of mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so slow and so pretentious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that piece by Alex Chadwick, though, you know, in Prague, I just thought that was extraordinary. Just exactly the same kind of energy that, that he would do it with today. A little, you know, maybe it's a little long. But most of the stuff didn't have the vibrancy that it should have. And if I could rerun 35 years of it, I would say make it shorter, make it far more spirited. You know, why does Amanda sound better than we do? I guess in a way, I always known that I was bisexual. Just like when I was in the first grade and I used to live like in my old house down on my grandmother's block now, all the kids used to be friends and we always used to go into um, the backyards and like play these yeah, little she's games. She's just there. She's right day, there. I mean, why? It's what Ken Nordine was saying earlier. You've got to be yourself. I think it's far too much pretension, especially on my part. It's a lot of my earlier work. Also, I will say this. Uh, I used to think that I was a good writer and I kept trying to prove it. And when I go back and hear that now, you know, it's just not there. And, and uh, I've said in the last five years, I have become a, writer, a good writer because I quit trying. You know, I'm just trying. As a writer now, I'm trying to disappear. I'm not trying to show off. Before, I was trying to show off. It was good writing, but it didn't really have much of a place in radio. That's the thing. You know, thank, thank goodness I had a chance to do a couple of books, so I got that urge over there on the, on the prose page. Other questions, anybody? Yes. I was wondering sometimes if the, if the form that we take, because we have to show a script to somebody, we have to edit it, we have to rewrite it, and then we voice it, um, is why you don't have Amanda. I mean, why we're not sounding like Amanda. That, that isn't there a way now, with technology so much easier than it was on tape, uh, to just go in and voice your story, and then go back and retell your story after your editor says, you know what? Why don't you change this around a little bit? But, but maybe as good writers as we can be, and you're you're one of the best. Um, I, I just uh, yeah. I just think that the form yeah. makes sense. Uh, you may have uh, exactly right. That can be done after the fact. And and I, I'm listening to a lot of BBC, and I'm hearing in the BBC a lot more reporting directly in the field without any studio narration. Let me play one thing here just quickly by uh, part of it. Robert Smith is very good at this. And he'll tell you right away, he does workshops for us, it's very hard to do. 
you know, which is why I'm so, in a way, still in awe of what Nina did in Sarajevo because you notice in the streets there she seemed perfectly natural, you know? I can't do that. I, I'm the professional in this family, right? I've been doing this a long time. I can't do that. It's a torturous thing for me to do a stand-up. You know, I gotta write it out and think about it and everything like that. But Robert Smith is uh, really cooking with it here. Midnight on 34th Street in Manhattan, and there are a lot of kids up past their bedtime. My name is Camelo, and I, I'm pretty much here to look at the elephants. You've never seen one in person? Nope. Much less in the streets of New York? Well, yeah, in between these big buildings, of course, I wouldn't see none, usually. A few hundred people have assembled here at the exit of the Queen's Midtown Tunnel, waiting for the elephants to come through. And this is more than just a promotion for the circus. This is actually a necessity. They've done this for decades. See, the circus train is about a mile long, and they can't really bring it into the city and walk the elephants up the escalators from Penn Station. So what they do is they park it over in Long Island City in Queens, they take the elephants off, and they walk them through the Queens Midtown Tunnel underneath the East River along 34th Street to Madison Square Garden. And here they come now. Back up, please. Back up a little bit. And it's a truly amazing scene. It's like a presidential motorcade. If the motorcade were made out of elephants with their trunks grabbing each other's tails, there's eight elephants walking down the middle of 34th Street. And it seems like the bars have cleared out. People are coming out to take pictures, to scream and yell, and to cheer for the elephants. So the guy who's probably most excited is this guy here. Come over here, you keep screaming elephants. My name is John Balthazar. Who doesn't love elephants? Not a damn person doesn't love elephants, sir. Needless to say, this has created a little bit of a uh, logistical challenge, let's say, for New York City police officers who are lining the route. My name is uh, Inspector John Cadelia, and I've been uh, doing this probably now for uh, about 16 years. Is there any special challenge to dealing with elephants on the city streets? It, it's basically just trying to keep them in a uh, straight single file. We want to make sure that they're, uh, they're not making any excessive noise because they're traveling late at night. And certainly we don't want them to leave any unpleasant surprises for the people that have to get up early in the morning. Elephants have ended up here at Madison Square Garden where they've opened up the big side entrance and now they're just lining up and getting ready to go in. The man who has ridden the lead elephant through the entire parade is Bello Knock the Clown. He's coming over here. What was that like? You know, I think I'm more excited than anything just to be able to ride an elephant down 34th Street, past Macy's, past, I mean, it's just unreal. Across Manhattan, I mean, it's something else. Yeah. And bringing up the rear of the procession is the least glamorous but probably the most necessary part of this parade. And that's the New York City Sanitation Department and the Street Sweeper. Robert Smith, NPR News, and Madison Square Garden. Well, obviously uh, mixed in the studio later, but all done completely there. On, in, and he makes it sound easy, which is what we all should be doing. We should make it sound easy, and we ought to sound like, you know, it's really wonderful to be doing this job, which it is most of the time. I was going to play, unless you're... Eric Westervelt or John Burnett or anybody who's been in Baghdad. I was going to play some of Eric's work in Baghdad, but next time. NPR has had uh, 40 people go to Baghdad, some of them many times uh, at, at great risk and great expense, and they've, they've done wonderful work, and a lot of techs and producers there, too. I, um, 
I want to close with a sound piece here. This is a, uh, not a submix, but a mixing element from uh, Lost and Found Sound. And uh, the uh, engineer is Bill Deputy, and he, we're in a mountain, up on a mountain in West Virginia, we're waiting to record a steam whistle of a train. This is the Lost and Found Sound, it's the steam whistle. And Bill, on, on remote, doesn't smile a whole lot. He's not, you know, he's too worried about it. And so we're up here, and anything can go wrong. You know, we know the train may be coming up the valley, but you can get a, you know, a chainsaw. You all know we can get airplanes, whatever. And Bill's sitting there. His pulse rate is up. He's listening really high gain. He can hear the wind in the trees, little insects coming. And he knows there's a train down there someplace, right? Bill's got this great big grin on his face. <laughs> it's, the, it's the most delighted I've ever seen Bill Deputy uh, in the field. He was very happy about that. Now, his mom, he's worried because it's DAT tape. Is it actually there, right? He's got to check it and make sure it's actually there. And it was there, and it got in the Kitchen Sisters series. Thank you all very much for coming.